Father, we thank you for the work you are doing in all of our hearts and lives. We thank you for the work you're doing in Pastor Troy's heart, and we pray for him like we pray for ourselves, that by your Spirit you would make Christ more and more lovely to us, that he would be the unrivaled king in our hearts, and that you'd help us to see the, the things of this world that we love too much, and that you would wean our hearts from them, and that we would, as your people, love Jesus more and more. We pray this in his name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. Here we go. Listen now to God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of a heart the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Earlier, I didn't pray specifically for our time now in God's word. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Fathers, we turn to your word. We, we're so thankful for it. We're thankful that you have not left us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself. And... Fathers, we turn now to this passage. We pray that the truth of your word would penetrate the recesses of our hearts and minds, that we would understand it, that we would apply it, that you would guard us from error, and that in all of this, you would grow our love for Jesus, our Messiah who once suffered but now reigns at your right hand. And we pray in his name. Amen. We saw last time that verses 11 and 12 are the overarching theme for this section of the letter. Verses 11 and 12. So, speaking of Twitter, 
if Peter was to sum up this whole section of the letter in a tweet, verses 11 and 12 would have been it. And it was just about the right number of characters in English. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter's describing in these two verses is lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism. Live in such a way that unbelievers see your good deeds, believe in Christ, and glorify God on the day of judgment. As we saw last time, Peter first tells us how to live as citizens. Be submissive, free, active, and ultimately suffering citizens. Now Peter turns our attention from the public square to the home. Now, none of us are household servants. Only some of us are wives or husbands. But as we study the Word of God tonight, this evening, we'll see that these verses are far more than, you could say, a manual for employees or a manual for spouses. No, these verses establish the paradigm for the Christian life. The paradigm, the pattern for the Christian life. And this is it. We could put it this way. You are called to do good and to suffer for it because Christ suffered for you. You are called to do good and to suffer for it because Christ suffered for you. Peter begins by addressing servants. These servants are Christian slaves, brothers and sisters in Christ, with no legal rights and no independence. What does Peter call them to do? Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Let that sink in. How do we make sense of such a command? Slavery was never humane, either then or now. Slavery was never rooted in God's good design for creation. Why does Peter tell slaves to be subject to their masters? It's a good question, and a lot could be said. The Bible clearly condemns taking someone captive and selling them into slavery. Paul encouraged slaves to gain their freedom if possible. But the bottom line is this. Where the institution of slavery existed, the Bible regulated it. Where the institution of slavery existed, the Bible regulated it without commending or condoning it. Another pastor shares a helpful analogy. Imagine if Peter had written to blended families. He may have said, stepchildren, obey your stepparents in the Lord. Stepparents, love your stepchildren as if they were your own. If Peter had written these things, would we, should we conclude that Peter was promoting divorce? No, of course not. We would understand that Peter was regulating an arrangement that already existed and that wasn't going away. In a similar way, these verses don't commend slavery or promote indifference to slavery where it exists today. In these verses, Peter regulates an arrangement that already exists and that wasn't going away. How should Christians relate? How should Christian slaves relate to their masters? Whether their master is good or bad, just or unjust, gentle or harsh, 
be subject. Why? Peter says, for the reward. He writes, starting in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You hear echoes of the words of Jesus? Jesus once said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? But love your enemies and do good, and your reward will be great. None of us are slaves. So how do these verses apply to you? How do they apply to me? As we'll see in the very next verse, The point is that the slave serves as the paradigm for the Christian life. The slave serves as the paradigm for the Christian life. As verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christian, to this you have been called. You have been called to do good, and to suffer for it, and to endure. Why? Because Christ suffered for you. The servant is the paradigm for the Christian life because Jesus was the suffering servant. Jesus was the suffering servant. He bore the cross for you. And he did so, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps and take up your cross following him. What does it look like to take up your cross? What does it look like for us as Christians today to do what Peter is saying? Well, he gives us at least three things in the next two verses, verses 22 and 23. What does it look like to follow in Christ's steps? First, do not sin. Peter writes, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Just as Jesus suffered and was blameless, So you too are called to suffer and be blameless. Blameless. Will you ever be completely sinless? No. Not until Christ returns. But the point is that Christ is your example. He's your pattern. He's the one you should be like. When you suffer for doing good, be like Christ and do not sin. Second, do not retaliate with your words. Peter writes, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When someone has wronged you, when someone has wronged you, how often have you spoken angry words in retaliation? (coughs) I know I have. Many times. Christ was reviled. The Son of God was reviled. Can anyone's sufferings compare to his? Yet he did not revile or threaten in return. When you suffer for doing good, be like your Messiah. Be like Christ. Do not retaliate with your words. Third and finally, entrust yourself to God. To follow Christ in his footsteps looks like entrusting yourself to God. As Peter writes, this is what Jesus did in his sufferings. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As Jesus trusted his Father, so should you. Trust the one who judges justly. 
Vengeance belongs to him, not to you. And he will vindicate you. He will vindicate you just like he vindicated his son. Entrust yourself to God. Do not take vengeance into your own hands. Are you following the example of Christ in these things? When you suffer unjustly as a parent, as an employee, as a citizen, as a spouse, in whatever role, when you suffer unjustly, do others see the likeness of Jesus in your life? Do they see a silent, sinless saint who's trusting God? Sinless, silent, one who trusts God. The good news the astonishingly good news is that Jesus not only suffered, but he suffered for you. He suffered for you. He's not only your example, he's also your savior. Peter goes on, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is such a simple but stunning summary of the gospel. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Your sins, my sins, in his body on the tree. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid those wages in his death on the cross. So you can never hear this too many times. Christian, you can never hear this too many times. Jesus died for your sins. He died for your sins. On the cross, he was bearing, he bore your sins and mine. Why did he die for our sins? Why did he die for our sins? The Bible gives us lots of answers. There are lots of ways to answer that question, but look at what Peter says in verse 24. Why did Jesus die for our sins? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you see it? We wouldn't have to be punished forever in the, in the depths of hell either. That's true. That's true. Exactly. Thank you. So here... Like I said, lots of answers to that question. But here, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died so that you might die to sin. He lived again so that you might live to righteousness. Christ died and rose again so that you might be holy, so that you might abstain from the passions of the flesh, so that you might keep your conduct honorable among unbelievers, so that you might become more and more like Jesus. This is why Jesus died for your sins on the cross, so you might live this way. Of course, as our brother Jimmy pointed out, it's not the only reason why Jesus died. It's not the only reason. He also died so that you might be forgiven, and forgiven is what you are if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Peter says, by his wounds... You have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's not talking about physical illness or physical maladies. One day we will be healed of all of that. He's talking about, well, as he says, for you were straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The suffering servant, look at this in verse 25, the suffering servant is also the master, the overseer. 
The slain lamb of God is also your shepherd. Verse 25, For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Your example in suffering is also your Savior. He died for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now, servants are not the only ones called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So are wives. And let me point out here that in these coming verses, Peter breaks all kinds of social norms. Something like this. What he writes here, this would not have been on the best-selling list of his day. He breaks all kinds of social norms. Maybe it would have been on the banned list. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were owned and had no legal rights. No one would get attention like this. But Peter addresses them, and he addresses them first. Then he addresses wives with six verses. In his day, no one treated the lowest and most vulnerable members of society like this. Slaves and wives, no one treated them with this kind of dignity. No one. Peter is breaking all kinds of social norms. Let's listen to what someone else said about this passage. A commentator, a woman, says this, How ironic is it that the words that first century slaves and wives would have heard as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. Let me read that again. How ironic is it that the words that first century slaves and Christians, in other words, the people who first heard this letter, they would have heard these words and read them as affirming and and empowering, but they're criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. With that in mind, let's turn now to these verses, verses 1 through 6, and Peter's instructions to wives. As we'll see, these verses are especially applicable to wives who have an unbelieving husband. They are generally applicable to all wives, but also I would say that these verses apply to all of us, all of us in the sense that these verses also are showing us the paradigm for the Christian life. You are called to do good, even to suffer for it, because Christ suffered for you. What does that look like? This is what it looks like. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. In the New Testament, this word subject is always used with reference to a relationship where one person has authority over another. In this case, the husband has authority over his wife. A wife comes under the authority of her husband, a husband whose authority is derivative. It's derivative because Christ is above all. Christ is above all. Other places in Scripture point us to creation and how the husband is the head of his wife. The Bible fills out this picture telling us that this authority of a husband over his wife points to the analogy of Christ and the church. A wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. So Scripture fills out this picture. But here in these verses, Peter simply says that wives are to be subject to their husbands. What he's describing here is voluntary submission. 
voluntary submission. It's submission that's freely given. It's not taken. Notice that the command is for the wife, not for the husband. The husband is not told to make his wife submit. The point is, wives, freely submit to your own husband. Peter tells us why. So that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice here the direct application to a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. As she seeks to win her husband to Christ, she has a powerful tool at her disposal. She has a powerful tool in her tool belt. It's not her words, it's her life. It's her conduct, the way she lives. Though he doesn't obey the word, he may be won without a word by seeing her pure conduct in fear. That's really the better translation here. Not respectful and pure conduct, but pure conduct in fear. In this letter, fear is always directed toward God, not toward people. And he uses the word fear here. Pure conduct in fear. Fear is always in reference to God. So what Peter's saying then is that a wife should live this way. Why? Because she fears God. Pure conduct in fear. It's this Godward orientation to her life. The implication, the implication here, Peter doesn't flesh it out, but the implication, pure conduct in fear. The implication is that a wife ultimately answers to God, not to her husband. This means that there are limits to submission. Many limits. In Peter's context, Wives were expected to worship their husbands' gods. In the Greco-Roman world, wives were expected to worship whoever their husband worshipped. Should Christian wives obey their husbands if their husbands demand them to worship false gods? No. No. Should Christian wives be subject if their husbands demand anything contrary to God's law? No. No. There are limits to submission. Peter is saying, wherever possible, because you fear God, be subject to your husband. In the next two verses, Peter describes what this pure conduct in fear looks like. He says, starting in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of a heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. If we take this literally, Peter is saying that women should not wear clothing. Do not let your adorning be external. Thankfully, we get his point, don't we? He's not, literally, that's what it says. That's what it says, literally. We get his point, though. We know his point. The point is, women, make yourselves beautiful on the inside. On the inside. To summarize what another pastor said, you women are wired for beauty, 
the Bible appeals to your natural feminine impulse and warns you not to settle for any lesser beauty than the internal beauty of Christ-likeness. Do not settle for any lesser beauty. The internal beauty of Christ-likeness is very precious in God's sight. God sees, and it's very precious. You are precious to Him. Labor for that beauty, and you will be, Peter says, daughters of Sarah. As As Troy reminded us this morning, we sometimes sing Father Abraham had many sons. Well, Mother Sarah has many daughters. And proclamation, let me tell you, proclamation is filled with these daughters. Filled with them. Peter writes in verses 5 and 6, This is how the holy women, of the, uh, holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When did Sarah call Abraham her Lord? It's funny how, in God's providence, sometimes morning and evening sermons uh, weave together. Well, Peter alludes here to Genesis 18 when the Lord told Abraham that Sarah would have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door. What's happening here? And she laughed, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Here's what Peter found so remarkable. Here's what he found so remarkable about that situation, what she says in that moment. Someone puts it this way. Sarah still referred to him with respect and dignity instead of merely calling him an old man. So Sarah, in this casual, offhand conversation, Sarah still referred to him with respect and dignity instead of merely calling him an old man. We see from this that even in casual situations, Sarah respected Abraham's leadership, revealing that her honor of him was part of the fabric of her life. Wives, is submission to your husband part of the fabric of your life? What do casual situations reveal about your attitude toward your husband? What's revealed in the offhand, casual conversations, the unplanned talks? May you be like Sarah, who called Abraham Lord. Do good, Peter says. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear your husband. Do not fear anything else that might be frightening. No, fear God and do good. Now, what about husbands? Peter doesn't leave them, leave them out. He gives one verse, and it's, it packs a punch. Here it is, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, or according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Does according to knowledge mean according to the knowledge of God or according to the knowledge of your wife? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. 
Peter doesn't clarify exactly what he means. Is it the knowledge of God and his will that should completely inform how I live with my wife? Or is it the knowledge of her that should completely inform how I live my life? To be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe if I looked at a few more commentaries, I would know. But I want to do both. And husbands, I hope you want to do as well. I want my knowledge of Becky and my knowledge of God's will to completely inform how I live with her. Honor your wife. Honor her. Husbands, show your wife honor. Show her honor as the weaker vessel. What Peter is saying here is that she is probably weaker than you simply in terms of sheer strength. That's what he means here. The weaker vessel. Women may be physically weaker than men, but notice the fundamental equality of Christian men and women. Peter says, we are heirs. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. We together share an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. So Peter says these things, then he ends with this significant warning. He says, essentially, dishonor your wife and God will not hear your prayer. Show your wife honor as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Dishonor your wife, and God will refuse to answer your prayers. Men who abuse their authority and mistreat women will not be heard by God. That's what Peter's saying. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way. What does this look like in everyday life? After seven years of marriage, I can say that Becky and I are still trying to figure it out. But I think that's by design. That's God's design. In passages like this one, the Word of God gives us principles that we then work out in the details of our lives. Here he's given us this principle, and he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty details of this day and this situation, how should we act. That's by design. God gives us principles, and we then work out in practice, in the details. It won't look exactly the same for every couple in every situation, but when you see these things worked out by God's grace through the power of the resurrected Christ in us, you will see a husband honoring his wife, honoring her. You will see a wife submitting to her husband. You will see believers doing good and suffering for it because the Messiah suffered for us. As we close, I want to speak about how there was a time in Peter's life, speaking of suffering, there's a time when Peter couldn't wrap his mind, he couldn't wrap his brain around the idea of a suffering Messiah. The Gospel of Matthew tells us about how Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. <coughs> be killed, and on the third day be raised. And one of his disciples took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far from it, Lord, this will never happen to you. Do you remember the disciple's name? It was Peter. It was Peter. But then he witnessed the suffering and the death and the resurrection of his Messiah, and he got it. Yes, the Messiah must suffer. By his wounds, we are healed. 
And what we see in this passage is that Peter exalts in the suffering Messiah and calls you to follow in his steps. Christian, do good. Even be ready to suffer for it because Christ suffered for you. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Then we'll sing our closing song. And uh, as time permits, well, I'll think about the Q&A. There'll be a lot to talk about, but we're almost at seven. I'll give that some thought. Uh, The blessings of uh, an outdoor service. Well, let's let's pray. And then we'll uh, sing our closing song. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to not only hear your word, but to do what it says. Father, we know that we know that in this world, there are so many, speaking of uh, marriages, there is so much brokenness in marriage in particular. Father, I pray that the men of proclamation would honor their wives that wives would submit to their husbands as to Christ, that uh, the marriages of our church would be more and more characterized by this fear of you and desire to obey your word. And Father, where, where there is unjust treatment, either of the husband to his wife or the wife to her husband, Father, may it come to the light and may spouses receive the help that they need. And Father, help all of us Help all of us in our Christian lives, whether we're single or married, whatever. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Christ, knowing that we have been called to this. Help us, Father. This is not easy. You've given us your spirit. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand. We'll sing Here is Love, found on page six, pages 6 and 7.